Serial killer William Dothan Holbert, also known as Wild Bill, lived like a king in Panama off the profits he made by killing multiple expatriate Americans in Panama. Motivated by money, he murdered innocent people before burying their bodies on the grounds of his stolen tropical paradise. The now-confessed killer and self-proclaimed hitman has become an inmate representative and has found Jesus. He leads daily church services and has covered his body with tattoos depicting good and evil. Let's lift the lid on this shit show. This is Twisted Travel and True Crime. Welcome aboard. I do currently live on a sailboat, so you'll hear boat and water noises in the background. Today, I'm recording at Rond Island, north of Grenada, and the anchorage is a little rolly, so you're going to hear some slapping of wires in our mast. Today's case takes us to Panama in Central America. If you listened to last week's episode, you'll know we extended our stay here in Panama. We covered a serial killer who targeted cruisers. Be sure to go back and listen to that one if you have a chance. Panama is the only country in the world where you can watch the sun rise over the Atlantic and set in the Pacific. Cher Lynn Hughes and her husband moved to Boca del Toros, Panama, near the turn of the millennia. Together, they began a small hotel business and made a decent living there. After 10 years of living and working together, their relationship had changed. Cher's husband had an affair, and they were splitting up. This hurt her deeply, but she was choosing to stay in Panama for the time being. Cher was the oldest of five children who grew up in St. Louis. When she and her husband had married in the mid-80s, they had opened a sign business in Gulfport. At some point, they took a vacation to Panama with friends and fell in love with the country and later decided to move there. Fast forward to 2010. Cher's sister Judy was supposed to come visit her. Cher and her husband split up and Cher was living alone at the time. Judy planned to visit Panama for the first time that summer. She'd go cheer up her sister and have a lovely vacation. Cher was looking forward to the distraction and was happy to show her sister all the sights. They talked, planned, texted, and emailed back and forth as Judy's excitement grew about the trip. Then all of a sudden, Cher quit communicating. Her soon-to-be ex-husband would talk to her on nearly a daily basis, but hadn't heard anything either. First, a few days went by, then a few weeks. Eventually, three months had gone with no one hearing from Cher. Her family and friends filed a missing persons report, and tried repeatedly to reach her through her cell phone and or Facebook pages. Eventually, they were able to reach a man named Bill Cortez, who claimed to be an investor and a realtor. He told her family that Cher had sold him all her property and then left Panama to go sailing. Her family didn't believe it. First of all, Cher hated sailing. Second, she was an adventurous woman, but she'd never go more than a few weeks without calling someone. She came from a big family, after all, and they were used to hearing from her regularly. Police in the area where Cher disappeared never opened an official investigation, even though locals started to suspect foul play. I want to make a note here that many of the homes I'll speak of today had some type of staff, but the homes were also very isolated. The staff didn't live on the properties, but worked there off and on. These were locals who did general maintenance on the homes. They might be gardeners or people who would be there often enough to have noticed changes or maybe a missing person, but not often enough to feel it was their responsibility to report it. 
After all, maybe the owner was just on vacation. The problem was that the homes were very private and isolated, and the owners weren't seen that often to begin with. As questions rose, one of Cher's friends, a 48-year-old expatriate named Joe Bonarigo, decided to swing by her place to take a look. Cher actually lived on an island, her home being the only one on it. He had seen that three of her four dogs, including one named Jackie, were there, but there was no sign of Cher anywhere. He knew something was very wrong, because Cher would never have left her dogs alone. They were her babies. It gave him a really bad feeling. One strange thing that began happening after the disappearance of Cher Hughes had to do with Jackie. Jackie was her adult male Doberman Pinscher. This dog simply adored her. Cher's house was located on an island exactly 1.53 miles to the southwest of another home. This one belonged to a man who called himself Wild Bill Cortez and his girlfriend who went by Jane. After Cher disappeared, Jackie the Doberman would show up at the Cortez property and didn't want to leave. On several occasions, Jackie was put in a boat and taken back to Cher's island. However, sooner or later, Jackie would just jump back into the ocean and swim the 1.5 miles back to the Cortez property. He seemed to like it there. After official channels failed to find her, the family turned to a man named Don Winter. Again, if you listened to last week's episode about the murder of sailors in the San Blas Islands, you'll already be familiar with Mr. Winter. But if you haven't, Don Winter is a retired Air Force intelligence officer who lived in Panama for a while and ran a website called thepanamaguide.com. He was a journalist and investigator, but he could also be hired to help with things when people first moved to Panama or if they needed help finding someone. He was hired to help find Cher. His investigation began in June of 2010. Like any good investigator, he wanted to start with who had seen Cher last and what were her last activities. He knew from Cher's sister Judy that a man named Bill Cortez claimed that Cher had sold her home to him and that she had left to go sailing. Bill Cortez wasn't in the area at the time, so Don Winter decided to take a little deeper look into Cortez. What he found was chilling, even in the Panamanian heat. He found that another American expatriate named Bo Eisler had disappeared recently. His property had also ended up in the hands of Cortez. Using government resources, Don Winter discovered that neither Bo Eisler or Cher Hughes had left the country through the airport using passports. He thought it was highly unlikely that two separate individuals would both be exiting the country illegally. One person, maybe, but two, no way. Winter began to suspect that Cortez was up to no good. He took the information to the Attorney General's office and walked them through what he had discovered. The next week, Cher's sister and aunt flew to Panama to meet with Winter and the authorities there. The authorities were hesitant to knock on Cortez's door and search his property for no reason, but Don Winter procured a tip that Bill Cortez might have an AK-47 on his property. This weapon is illegal in Panama, so the authorities were able to issue search warrants. When they arrived at Cortez's property, he wasn't there, but they searched the home and found some of Cher's belongings on a table inside the home. Some of these were documents regarding her home and identification. 
It was said that they also found underwear or lingerie belonging to Cher. On July 20th, 2010, while they're searching Wild Bill's house, this dog kept bothering them. He kept running out of the bushes and barking at them and then running back into the bushes. He did this over and over. Don Winter is quoted as saying, it was like something out of a movie. The dog would come out and bark at them and then go back into the woods. The dog was Jackie, Cher's beloved Doberman. Eventually, investigators decided to follow the dog who led them to a mound of dirt where he lay down crying and whining. It seemed as if he was trying to tell them something. When the investigators started digging, they found a body. It was Cher Hughes. Jackie refused to leave her side. If it weren't for Jackie, who knows how long it would have taken investigators to find the remains of Cher Hughes, or maybe she would never have been found at all. Strap on your safety harnesses. This two-part episode will have your head spinning and your stomach lurching. There's so much more to this case because they didn't find just one body in the wooded area. They found five. Let me rewind now and tell you about Wild Bill Cortez. Much of the information you'll hear came from Wild Bill's own mouth during his interrogation and in interviews he has given since then. You need to know that he confessed to these murders and that he claimed his girlfriend was completely innocent. Wild Bill Cortez was a nickname and a false identity. According to Wild Bill himself, his nickname came across sometime around 2010. Before that, he went by Big Bill, or just plain Bill. He was owed some money by someone who couldn't pay it to him. This debtor had a small kit seaplane. So Big Bill Cortez took the kit plane as payment. It was still in boxes when he took ownership of it. He and a bunch of his buddies put the plane together just for fun. Bill didn't have a pilot's license or know how to fly, so it just sat in the water tied to the dock at his oceanfront home. His friends were giving him a hard time about it when one night, while they were all drinking heavily, they were teasing him about it, something about an expensive decoration. At this point, Bill drunkenly decided to heck with this, so he gets on the plane. He drives it out into the ocean, takes off somehow, circles the plane, and lands it like a stone skipping across a pond. The landing was apparently pretty rough, but he survived. As he motored the plane back up to the dock and got out, his friends were cheering and amazed that he had survived. From that point forward, they started calling him Wild Bill, and he began to introduce himself that way. The man was born with the name William Holbert in Henderson, North Carolina. He was born on September 12, 1979. He was an only child. In high school, he was a typical kid, but even then he liked attention. He was a big boy. He played football and was pretty popular. One of his classmates said that during his senior year at a pep rally, all of the seniors were given flowers. William Holbert ate his in front of everyone. After graduation, he tried to start businesses and work for others, but unfortunately wasn't very successful. In 2004, he claimed to have opened a gym in Asheville, North Carolina. He had a partner in this endeavor, and they named the business The Body Shop Health and Fitness Center. He spent a lot of time working out, drinking, and taking steroids. This led to a drastic change in his personality. He became violent and aggressive. At this gym is where he met his girlfriend, Laura Michelle Reese. 
He also enjoyed guns. Of course, many of the pleasures he enjoyed cost money, and so petty crime was how he paid the bills. His first big scam turned out to be the gym. The reality was that another couple actually owned the gym, and this small gym was really a chain of gyms. They had hired Holbert to manage it for him. He had only worked there for about 10 weeks when the owners discovered that he had stolen about $25,000 from them. He had also tried to sell the gym as if he had owned it in the first place. He was involved in a similar scheme in 2005. He took over a house in North Carolina. It was located on Oak Island. The owners returned to their vacation house on the coast. They'd been gone for a few months. When they finally reached their home, they made a shocking discovery. There was a man inside making renovations to their home. This man adamantly claimed that he owned the house. What was even more startling was that he had a deed. The three of them put their heads together and came to realize that they had all been duped and that Wild Bill was responsible. He was nowhere to be found. This was the first in a series of such incidents by Holbert before he left the United States. By 2006, Wild Bill made it to the America's Most Wanted list. He narrowly escaped arrest in the United States for a host of misdemeanors, including real estate fraud. He ran for the border, taking his girlfriend, Laura Michelle Reese, with him. They headed to Costa Rica, spending their money and acquiring fake passports. These passports were bought out of the Dutch West Indies, and now the couple were known as William Adolfo Cortez and Jane Shauna Cortez. In July of 2007, they entered Panama and settled in a town called Vulcan. I'm also going to warn you that there are two versions of his story about the murders. I'll tell you the first one that happened during his early interrogations, and then I'll tell you the second. Trust me when I say you'll be entertained by both versions. Version one goes something like this. Wild Bill told investigators that he and Reese had entered Panama illegally in 2007, just by crossing the border close to Rio Sereno. He said it was very easy to do. Apparently, he walked across the border at night, walked to a nearby town, bought an SUV, and then went back to the border the next night to pick up Reese. Once in Panama, they could live very cheaply. He rented a house for a year for $3,200. At the time, he still had $50,000 in cash left over from the fraud he had committed in the U.S. While in Panama, he made a few attempts at making money. He claims to have set himself up as a psychiatrist. He had wealthy wives of local prominent men coming to him, in his own words, to complain. He would sit there and he would listen to them as they complained about their husbands. He said it was essentially the same story over and over. These women would go to Costa Rica or Panama with their husbands, but once there, their husbands would go out partying and drinking and end up having affairs with the local women. The men would leave their wives at home. The wives felt lonely and neglected, so they would come to him to ask him for advice. He would tell them they should leave their husbands. He said that in Panama, it's fairly easy to get a divorce. He would also fill prescriptions for them, he would call their doctors at home in the States, asking if the prescription is legitimate, and then he just had some prescription pads made up. He would fill one out and send the women to the pharmacy. The pharmacist would fill it. He never had to show any proof of actually being a doctor, which of course, he wasn't. 
After some time in Costa Rica, they decided the small town they lived in was getting boring, so they decided they wanted to move. He began looking for a home when he saw an ad from a man named Michael Brown on Craigslist. This man was going to sell his home. Wild Bill gave him a call and arranged that Michael would pick him up so that he could visit the property. While visiting with Michael, he found out that Mike had been a drug trafficker in the past. Michael shared this information openly. Wild Bill said he came to the conclusion that Michael was a desperate man, like Bill himself was, and in his own words, he said, My first thought was to rob him because he told me he had a lot of money, but I changed my mind when I saw his property which was in a remote, beautiful place, and that's when I decided to kill him and his family, too. He hung out with Michael and his family for three days, and over that time he found out that Michael Brown had a nest egg and around $90,000 in cash. In addition, he owned his home through a small shell corporation. Michael explained to Holbert how shell corporations with their shares worked, and that essentially, Whoever was holding the shares was the owner of the corporation. Basically, if you have the papers saying the company owns the home, then you own the home. A person's name doesn't have to be tied to the company or the property. All Wild Bill had to do was get his hands on Michael Brown's shares, and the property would legally belong to him. On his third day with the Browns, he hatched his plan. He asked Michael Brown to take him back to a well located on the back of the property. When they got to the well, Wild Bill shot Michael Brown with a single bullet to the back of the neck. When he was asked where he had got the gun, Wild Bill responded saying, I had bought the gun in a bad part of David. I asked a man selling drugs if he could get a weapon for me and after 30 minutes he came back with a new gun that was still in its box. I don't remember the make or brand, but I remember it was made in Argentina and it was a piece of garbage. It was low quality and made of a kind of metal you would use to make pots and pans. It felt like aluminum. After killing Michael, he walked back into the house and asked Mike's son, whose name he couldn't remember when telling the story, that his father wanted him to bring a shovel out and to help do some digging. He told the boy that he would walk with him to find his father. The young man was 17 years old at the time. Wild Bill took him to where his father was and then shot him. He was shot in the back of the neck, just like his father. Bill then returned to the house where Michael's wife was gardening. She was working, bent over, and she was killed in the same way as her husband and son. To make sure they were all dead, Wild Bill shot the family in the neck for a second time. The Brown family kept a pickup truck on their farm. Bill threw the three corpses in the back of it and drove deep into the bushes. Back behind the house, he stopped and dug two shallow graves. He put Michael Brown in one, and in the other he tossed Mrs. Brown and their son. Their bodies would stay there, decomposing, until they were discovered two years and seven months later. After killing the Browns, Bill went back to the house to find some soap and bleach to clean the truck. He said he then proceeded to get drunk, and when he woke up the next day, he used the Brown's motorboat to get back to his girlfriend and their home. He explained to her that they had a new house, and that was that. They moved in and made the Brown house into their home. All the Brown's possessions became theirs, from the leftover food and drinks, to the clothes, the family photos, etc. 
I can't imagine that as his girlfriend or a wife, moving into a home like this wouldn't raise some major red flags. Part of the reason he chose the Brown family was because he figured they were fugitives and wouldn't have people looking for them. He was right. Wild Bill made a statement that there were three types of Americans that you can find in Panama. He explained, the first were Americans who wanted to retire overseas in a place where they would be treated like kings and queens. Essentially, they would have very cheap labor. They could have a cook, nanny, housekeeper, or maintenance man if they wanted, and they could live happily on 3000 a month. The second type would be people who really liked to do drugs. If they tried to make you go to rehab, say no, no, no to Panama. I read a statistic that said you could buy drugs in Panama for about a quarter of the price you can buy them in the States. Many drugs are illegal, but there is drug-based corruption so high into the government that illegal drug use is rarely enforced. The amount of drugs passing near or through Panama is staggering. In fact, when drugs are found or confiscated, they are occasionally brought to prisons and given to the prisoners. The third type of American Wild Bill would find in Panama would be fugitives or people running from the law. He said two out of three of these people you meet, you don't really want to meet because they're not good guys. Wild Bill and his girlfriend moved into the Browns residence on New Year's Eve of 2007 and for the next two years they lived a trouble-free life. The Browns' home was spacious and there was plenty of Brown money to spend. There was $90,000 in cash but there was another 225000 in a bank account in Hong Kong. When Bill went through the Browns' documents, he found a filing cabinet. Inside it, he found passwords and account information. He was able to make a request for a new debit card with a new PIN number, since he didn't have the PIN number of the old card. He sent the request directly to the bank in Hong Kong, because he knew if he'd sent it to Panama's bank, he would be asked for identification. Hong Kong issued him a new card and sent it to an express mail service in Panama. All he had to do was say that he was picking it up for Michael Brown, and voila, he had a brand new card with a new PIN number. He slowly bled Michael Brown's account dry with systematic withdrawals at an ATM nearby. With part of the money, he stocked up the new bar he had built. He bought a new, powerful speedboat to tie to the dock on the oceanfront property, he put in a few mooring balls for sailors to tie up to and to bring in customers and friends. He named his bar the Jolly Roger Social Club and it became quite a hit among the expatriates in Panama. On the wall there was a skull and crossbones flag. There was a banner that said, Wild Bill presents the Jolly Roger Social Club. It was a members only drinking and card playing club. The banner went on to read, over 90% of our members make it out alive. People who visited the club said that Bill was unusual, but he was very popular. He was quite charming, and if you're interested in listening to his interviews, you will hear just how charming he is. He maintained relationships with a large group of colorful friends and petty outlaws, although later on he would claim they weren't so petty, but I'll get back to that later. He became the self-declared minister of the First Church of the Inebriation. He made odd jokes around his bar patrons, saying things like, Now that I've got a licensed firearm, I'm going to shoot some of you gringo jerks. 
Even his girlfriend, who normally kept silent and in the background, couldn't resist making some sadistic comments. She said, There's things going on here in Boca that's going to make your blood curdle. People are going to be completely freaked out. Every now and then, Wild Bill and his girlfriend took off for occasional trips to other parts of Panama or to Costa Rica. When they would do this, they would tell friends that they were visiting relatives. It was a lie, but it made them seem more normal and not to ask many questions about their families. In May or June of 2009, Wild Bill and his girlfriend began to fight. They were both drinking way too much. Bill began spending a ton of money and was away from home a lot. I guess he didn't learn much from his days as a fake psychiatrist because he was doing the same thing that his patients would talk about their husbands doing. His girlfriend was stuck on a farm, alone in the middle of nowhere, and he was out having a great time with his buddies doing who knows what. Things had to change for them, so Bill decided to do something to make a change. He put an ad in the local paper saying that he bought houses. In the beginning, he said his intentions were honorable. A man named Bo Yancey, whose real name was actually Bo Eislar, called to see if Wild Bill wanted to buy his house. Bo Eisler wanted over 400000 but Wild Bill didn't think that was a reasonable price, so he turned him down. The purpose of Wild Bill's ad was really to find people who needed to sell their homes and people who were desperate to sell. In September and October of 2009, Wild Bill came across Eisler a few more times at parties and get-togethers. As Wild Bill got to know him better, he got the impression that Eisler was in a witness protection program and had something to do with the Mafia, based off of comments that Eisler had made. At this point, Wild Bill decided to kill him, because he thought that Eisler's death would be attributed to the Mafia in the United States. In November of 2009, Wild Bill invited Eisler to his house so that he could meet with Wild Bill's attorneys. This was in order to make arrangements about buying the house. But the story about the attorney was a lie. Instead, Wild Bill picked Eisler up by boat at his home, and on the way back to Wild Bill's home, while in the boat in the middle of a lagoon, he shot Eisler in the back of the neck with a 38 caliber revolver. Of course, Eisler was carrying the bear shares of his shell corporation in anticipation of the sale. By this time, Wild Bill had men working for him at his home, so he had instructed them to dig a hole in a small clearing in the bushes about 300 yards behind what was once the Browns' house. He threw Eisler's body into the hole and covered it with a thin layer of dirt. On top of this, he threw in household garbage. The next day, Wild Bill filled the hole with more dirt. According to Wild Bill, his girlfriend wasn't in the house on the days that Eisler was shot. He had sent her off shopping somewhere. So now Wild Bill and his girlfriend had two homes. They mainly lived in the big house they had stolen from Bo Eisler. They had both decided to quit drinking, and for about six weeks, and during this time, Bill made some nice improvements to the Eisler property, with the idea of flipping it and then reselling it. Eventually, however, they returned to the house that formerly belonged to the Browns. Wild Bill felt most at home there. In 2008, Wild Bill and his girlfriend met Cher Hughes and her husband, Keith World. Wild Bill tells of a couple boozy parties, or some of the party guests, including Keith, came to blows. Eventually, Keith would leave Cheryl for an acquaintance of hers, and that hurt Cher deeply. 
She seemed to use Wild Bill and his girlfriend as a shoulder to cry on. She had lost a lot of weight and was under a hundred pounds. According to Wild Bill, this was because of consistent drug use. She had mentioned that she didn't want to live anymore. It was at this point Wild Bill decided that it would be okay to kill her as well. On the night he killed Cher, he thought his wife was staying in Bo Eisler's house, or maybe she was somewhere else, because they were still going through issues in their relationship. He killed Cher execution style, just like he had the others, and drove her down to his graveyard in the back of the Browns' house. He had instructed his workers in the days before to dig another hole. He threw her body in a blue tarp and tossed it in the hole and covered it with a thin layer of dirt and some household garbage, just like he had with Bo Eisler. The next day, he had his workers fill the hole with more dirt. For some reason, he decided to send a large gray cooler full of her clothes and some personal belongings by mail to Panama City. He said he did this to cover his tracks. The whole time, while he's making accounts of what supposedly happened, he's protecting his girlfriend. He continued to say that his wife is innocent of all these crimes and didn't have any knowledge of what he had done. He said, I've always acted alone, as is my habit, and if there's any justice in the world, she will be released. And that, my twisted traveling friends, is where we'll end the first part of this two-parter. Make sure to subscribe so that you can hear the rest of this case. There's so much more to the story and to Wild Bill. You won't want to miss it. If you'd like to see some pictures from my research, I will have them on the Twisted Travel and True Crime Facebook page and Instagram page. You'll find links to those in the show description. There you will also find a button that will let you support the podcast financially. I'd love for you to do that or to give the podcast a nice rating or review or tell a friend or all three would be amazing. I'd like to thank listener Jeannie F. for the recommendation of last week's case, which also led me to this case. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Thank you all once again for listening, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds and following seas.